It was uh, nearly 12 years ago that I planted a church, and about three to four years into that church plant, I was asked to start assessing other potential church planters to see if uh, they could hear the perspective of someone who's done it, who's had boots on the ground, and also help funding agencies that want to sign off on a church planter to see if they have what it takes. And so I, I remember meeting with this one church planter in particular. I sat down with him, and he had an assumption about my line of questioning in this interview. He came in assuming I was going to ask about something. And because of my unique perspective as a church planter, I had a different line of questioning that I thought far more important. So I started asking a couple questions just to warm it up. I said, tell me why this city. And uh, he said, well, you know, I just feel like I'll have favor here. I feel like I have a lot of friends in this city already. I said, great. So tell me what neighborhood of this city specifically has grabbed your heart. Where are you most loyal? Where do you want to invest your life? Where do you really feel called? And he said, doesn't matter. And I said, well, what do you mean it doesn't matter? He goes, doesn't matter. He goes, see, this city has yet to see what I'm about to do. My vision is so clear, so precise. It is going to take the entire city by storm. In fact, people are going to leave their churches to come to my church, and people are going to be saved. They're going to be talking about what I'm about to accomplish all, all over the globe. I said, okay. And a little dumbfounded, I said, thank you for coming in today. I appreciate your time. And he said, well, don't you want to hear about my vision? Don't you want to hear about what I'm going to do? Don't you want to hear about how big that is? And I said, no, no, no. And he was like, well, why not? I said, well, I, I assume that you have some pretty big ideas, and you're pretty clear in articulating those, and I would love to hear those, but I had a more important question to ask. What your vision for church planting is, is important. But to me, that's not the most important question. He said, what's the most important question? I said, are you humble? And he said, well, you never asked me that question. I said, I know I never verbally said that question, but you certainly answered it. Without a doubt, you've answered that question. And see, the truth of the matter is, I tried to tell him before he left. I said, you're about to venture into one of the most challenging things you've ever done in your life. The word says this, that... He will humble the proud and he'll exalt the humble. In James 4, it says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And as we turn our attention to James 4 today, I just want to, I want you to know, I cannot overstate how important this specific passage is, not just to the book of the James, but to us as the church in the New Testament today. The psalmist wrote it like this in 139. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way within me and lead me in the way of everlasting. So today, I, I just want to beckon the heart of the people of God. And I want you to ask, not, I just want you to go introspective, not what you might be saying on the outside. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he said, you know, you, your words honor me, but your hearts are far from me. You're like whitewashed tombs. And so today, church, I just genuinely believe we've got to be willing to look under the surface a little bit, pop the hood, and evaluate, you know, are the things we're saying lining up with the motives that are underneath? And the, are the motives underneath what God wants or what we want? So as we turn our attention to James 4, 
I'm going to look at the first three verses right here. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And I have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend it and get on, uh, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So today's sermon is titled this, Be Humbled, Not Hardened. I want you to look again at the phrases he uses here. He says, you desire, but you do not have. You kill and covet, but you cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You see, what James is getting at right out the gate in these first three verses is when you are the object of your worship and affection, you will absolutely never be satisfied or fulfilled by what you get in life, ever. When you are the object of your affection, when you were intended and designed to worship him, you're never going to be satisfied. There's a paradigm shift that is supposed to happen in our lives when we claim Jesus or profess him as Lord and Savior, that he becomes the center of our universe and we begin to revolve around him. He becomes our primary object of affection and worship. But when we claim Jesus, but we are still on the throne of our hearts and our own desires, our own agendas are, are actually what we're after, we are in opposition to God and his will. We're the center of our universe, and he, he has some really indicative words that he's going to use in this, in this passage we're about to read. He calls us adulterous. He calls us enemies. And so what is the solution? We have to uncover for ourselves what's under the surface, what's actually there, and only you and I can answer for ourselves. So the solution is we have to check our motives. Godly motives need to, be, need to define the means always. And means are defined as an action or a system by which a result is brought about. It's a method. So today's first point, motive defines the means from James' perspective. He used the word here, desires, in verse 1. Maybe, maybe your Bible says pleasures. But this word in the Greek is hedone, which is where we derive the word hedonist, which means gratification of every fleshly, sensual, or even natural desire. The hedonist is a person who believes that the pursuit of their own pleasure is the most important thing in life. And we have to ask ourselves, is this us? They are literally the center of their universe. There's been no paradigm shift within their mind or heart towards Jesus becoming their primary center. And so the wars rage within them. And due to selfish ambition, as we discussed last week, the hedonist or someone who is self-centered, someone who's worshiping themselves, thinks only of themselves. And thus, they're in a constant state of misery. God has designed it in such a way that when you are your God, you will never be fulfilled. We desire, but we don't have, he says. We yearn, but we even manipulate sometimes unto our own way. And that's not fulfilling either. We try to pray but nothing. James says we fight with ourselves, we fight with others, and we fight ultimately with him within ourselves because we have this war raging for him to be on the throne or us to keep ourselves on the throne going on within our heart. We ask him, but we do not attain. We, the answer always seems to be no anytime we put something before God and we get frustrated 
But that no is actually out of love because it's always due to our motive in asking. That's why I'm asking us to think about our motive. It is solely selfish and for our own gain, not his will or his advance. He says that when we claim God, yet we pursue self, only we're adulterous, literally cheating on God, making ourselves not innocent bystanders, but rather intentional enemies of God. James 4, 4 and verse 5 says this, because we've chosen friendship with the world over a submission or true friendship to him. Now, I want to for full disclosure, I don't genuinely believe that anyone here has attended today because they have a desire to be an enemy of God. In earnest, I think that if you're here, you probably want the opposite, to be quite honest. However, does our interior motive line up with what we're saying and the actions that we're taking in life? Does our interior motive drive what we're doing? And does it reveal what's actually underneath the surface, what we're actually about? What's driving our motivation beneath the surface? In our hearts and in our minds, church, only you can answer that for yourself. You can't even answer that for your spouse. You can't even answer this for your kids. You can only answer it for you. I can only answer it for me. And so James says in verse 5 that God jealously longs for us. He pursues us even when we're not pursuing him. This is the truest, it's the purest, and most steadfast of loves. This is resolved love of covenant. How many of you have experienced God pursuing you even when you've turned your back on him? And how does that make us feel? You know what I'm talking about? Like when God still comes after you and shows that he loves you and he's gracious with you even when you're not giving them time of day. So he says, God loves us with a love that we don't deserve, but he offers us as a free gift. Does the reality of God's love and his pursuit of you cause you any conviction? Does it cause us to come to a place where we pause and rethink, maybe even right now in this moment today, possibly what our motives might be and if they're aligned with his will? What are our ultimate desires and are they opposed to his ultimate desires? Whose name are we seeking to really make great here? His are our own. So James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10, James gets really specific about this, and I need you to understand who he's talking to. James is not talking to an ambiguous people in the world. He's talking to the church. Thus, he's talking to us. He says, you adulterous people. Like, he comes out the gate with some pretty hard language. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think, the scriptures say without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So, verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. How many of you, that is good news, that God comes close to the brokenhearted? 
the contrite in spirit, the convicted, he draws close. If you want an intimate relationship with God and you say, I want to know him on a real personal level, he comes close to the brokenhearted, but he has a stiff arm for those who are proud. Listen, meekness is the mode. Mode is defined as a way or a manner in which something occurs or is expressed or is done. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. This is the key verse this entire passage and unlocks everything. God gives us grace when we're humble, but he's always going to resist us. He's going to literally stand in opposition to you and I when we are proud. We've discussed this before, but I cannot, I cannot emphasize enough how important this is. And it needs to be put on repeat in our own minds and our own hearts. It should be something that we, we constantly preach to ourselves because I, wanna, I don't want to assume too much. I'm just using history as a metric here. But how many of you would say, without raising your hand or without outing yourself, that you might be a little wayward when it comes to your pursuit of God? That you might not pursue him entirely all the time. And here's the thing. We are only going to receive the stiff arm of God when that's all he receives from us. There exists a battle for your will, and God is superior, and he's sovereign. ourselves and not let us pursue or worship the wrong thing if we claim lordship to jesus he's not going to allow us to claim him as god yet still sit on the own throne of our lives aw tozer said it like this he said the reason why many are still troubled still seeking still making little forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves we're still trying to give orders and we're still interfering with god's work within us Listen, God comes close and answers the humble. Told us last week, we looked at it. He reminded us that a life submitted to God has his wisdom and the persona of others that have and see life as peace and an act of meekness. But when you are solely about your own agenda, don't you feel that the people in your life are going to reflect that? If your life stands in opposition to God because your heart is really about yourself, Look around at you, at the relationships you have. Don't you think that's going to show up at some point? If you are selfishly approaching everything in life for your own agenda, do you think your kids are going to feel safe with you? Do you think that your spouse isn't going to notice? Do you think your boss trusts you? You hear me? This is, this is a concern that James is putting before not just a random amount of people on the planet. He's telling the church, everything you do is worship of God. You were designed in this way. So you cannot have a response be, driven by a motive that is polar to that. This is a heart The one that seeks him, seeks his will, and puts aside their own agenda is the heart that God desires. He says, submit to God and resist the devil. This word resist, I want you to understand what it actually means. It doesn't mean flee, like run away. To resist the devil literally means to take intention and stand up at arms against. 
Like to be willing to take battle against that thing that's coming after you that's trying to distract you and steal from you, steal you from what God desires. It's not ignoring him as much as it is intentionally turning our backs on him and his influence over us. It's deciding to listen humbly and more intently to Jesus than we do the liar. And how many of us have been susceptible to the lies of the enemy in our lives before? You see, you, you're familiar with them. Those insecurities, those, those places where you're really aware of how frail you are and, and how faulty you are, how many of you have ever had those on repeat in your mind before? Your own failures. This is the liar. And resisting him means not allowing that to play on repeat in our mind, but letting the truth about you being valuable to a God who loved you and his pursuit of you, even when you don't pursue him, is the truth. And letting that be on repeat. The evidence of our own faith is how we respond to him when he does convict us. And, and the way that shows up in our lives with other people by our peace in any given environment, by our meekness, the controlled strength by which we approach circumstances that aren't, aren't the, the best, the way that we respond versus reacting in fear the way we allow circumstance, the waves that are just seemingly unmanageable, the way we succumb to those and we drown in them, listening to the lies of the enemy, only further proving what maybe we've allowed ourselves and the war that's within us to believe that you weren't good enough. Ever told yourself that? Or it's all your fault. What? All of it. Or that you'll be there for everyone, but in the end, no one will be there for you. I don't know what the lie is that you continue to succumb to, that the enemy continues to speak to you, even if people in your life are not saying those words specifically. It's exactly what you hear, and it cripples you from walking in a life of faith. I'm not sure what it is, but I just know that God loves you enough for you to stop lying to yourself and stop listening to that and start turning our attention to him and letting him have his way. You see, because he goes on to say this in James 4, 11 and 12. He says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Now, time, before I read on anymore, I, I want you to understand. How many of you are pretty aware of how flawed you are? Okay, that's okay to admit that. We all, that's across the room, okay? But how many of you sometimes justify your flaws by looking at people around you? I'm not perfect, but I'm not that dude, right? Okay, so the only way that we move forward in intimacy with the Lord is we stop doing that and stop deflecting, stop placing and shifting blame, and we start looking inside and putting before the Lord, like, God, search me and know me. If there's any offensive way within me, reveal it. I want to put it before you because I want your way more than my own. Brothers and sisters, verse 11, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them and speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment upon it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Third point here, Messiah is the master. You see, Jesus is Savior, and if he's Savior, then he's simultaneously Lord, which means he's boss. And this is what lordship means. 
that he is to have first place, both affection and authority in your life and in mine. For anyone who claims to be a part of Jesus' church, he is to be the center of our attention, and he should be both authority and have our complete affection. This is his rightful place for us. Oswald Chambers wrote it like this in an excerpt, trying to explain how deferring our interpretation of the word master is from what the Bible says. I thought he did it master. Let me just read this short excerpt. It says, to have a master and teacher is not the same thing as being mastered and taught. Having a master and a teacher means that there is someone who knows me better than I know myself, who's closer to the friend and who understands the remotest depths of my heart, is able to satisfy them fully. It means having someone who has made me secure in the knowledge that he has met and solved all the doubts, all uncertainties, and the problems in my mind. To have a master and teacher is this. It's nothing less. It's for one is your teacher, the Christ, Matthew 23. Our Lord never takes measures to make me do what he wants. Sometimes I wish God would master and control me to make me do what he wants, but he will not. And then at other times, I wish he would leave me alone, and he does not. You call me teacher and Lord, but is he? Teacher, master, and Lord have little place in our vocabulary. We prefer the word savior, sanctifier, and healer. The only word that truly describes the experience of being mastered from God's perspective is love. And we know little about love as God reveals it in his word. The way we use the word obey is proof of this. In the Bible, obedience is based on relationship between equals. For example, that of the son with his father. Our Lord was not simply God's servant. He was his son. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience, Hebrews 5 says. If we are consciously aware that we are being mastered, then the idea itself is proof that we have no master. It is our attitude towards Jesus. We are far away from having a relationship that he wants with us if that is the way we see him. You see, Jesus wants us in a relationship where he is so easily our master and our teacher that we have no conscious awareness of that fact. He wants us in a relationship where all we know is that we are his to obey. How many of you identify with this statement? He said it, sometimes I wish God would master and control me to make me do what he wants, but he will not. And then at other times, I just wish he'd leave me alone, but he does not. How many of you? Okay. When we're seeking our own blessing, when we're seeking that which tells the world that we're rich, whether in resource or in persona. We desire so often for him to do this for us. We just, like, God, tell me what to do and I'll do it. But then, when we are directed by him in a way that opposes our own direction, our own desire for ourselves, we also want him to stop. And here's what we have this tendency to do. When we are on either end, seeking our own way and begging God to show us or opposing his leading and telling him to back off. Instead of looking within ourselves and recognizing we're doing that, we have a tendency to just look outward and pass blame on others. And so we justify ourselves by turning on other people. We get convicted by our own flaws, which are pronounced to us by God, just like the psalmist said. He starts to expose those offensive ways within us, and here's what we do. We have a tendency to go, okay, 
I feel really bad about this. I know that I should do something with it. So here's what I'm doing. I'm not perfect, but I'm not her. I'm not perfect, but I'm not him. And I can feel better about the reality that I am not perfect, but I'm not as bad as them. And we define ourselves and our justification by thinking. Just listen to, a, to this thought process and how broken it is that we, a broken people, are better than someone else. But if we're true disciples, truly children of God, then our response should be trusting and submitting to our loving master, knowing that he trusts us to follow him. He may not do it for us, but he allows us to join him. If we're doing something that's offensive to him, that is opposite what he desires, he's going to reveal it. And when we repent of that, we decide his way is more important. Like, we don't tell him to stop. We say, please, speak that more. He loves that. This is worship. We're submitted to our loving master. And I want to say this. He's the only one that is fairly fit to judge other people because he's free of bias. He's committed to God's standard alone. So he, because he was perfect and unstained, untainted by sin, he's the only one that has the right to serve as judge of the people. Amen? And I'm saying that having known that I've judged in my heart a little bit before. Have you? But I'm not right to be the judge. I'm not righteous enough to be the judge. I couldn't save myself, thus I can't condemn others. Hello? So this morning, the beauty of this reality, coupled with the beauty of his love and desire to be in relationship with me, with you, should beckon our allegiance. This morning, we have to look inside. Are things going as you and I desire? It's a question only you can answer for yourself. And if so, do you feel good about that? How many of you, things are going the way that you want, but you also know that you had a hand in it? You manipulated that. So you feel this guilt, this pit kind of rise up within your stomach for that manipulation and helping the circumstances along in your favor. See, that's something to repent of. God's trying to speak to you. Would Jesus call you this morning his friend, or would he call you the world's friend? Do you spend more time judging others or reflecting on your own need to submit further to Jesus? This is what James is asking us. Are you humble this morning? Are you teachable? Are you this morning, as you sit here, pliable? Or are you hardened? Are you proud, even judgmental? You see, James reminds us that Jesus' church has always had him as an escape, a refuge, a place to repent and turn to. Submitting all the more to Jesus and drawing close to him is the appropriate response of the church. It gives him a place to mold and remold us. We must intentionally resist the devil and his lies, enticing us to choose self, enticing us to stand in judgment of others. And if we'll stand up against him, He'll flee from us, leaving all room and influence for Jesus alone. So this morning, I want you to close your eyes as I pray, and the band comes back, and we prepare our hearts for communion. This morning, I want us to reflect as we contemplate coming to the table of the Lord for communion. I want you to imagine everyone else in this room has passed away. No one else is here. It's just you coming to dine with the Lord. 
This morning, are you prepared to come to his table? Is your heart free of any judgment of others? Is your heart free of any conflict in your seeking your agenda or his? Are you completely submitted to his will? Today, as worship, as we prepare to come to the table of communion, we have an opportunity to repent of our hard heart and accept his leading us. Stop resisting it. This morning, Father, we want to reflect and repent of any place that's offensive, of any place that chooses our way over your own, of any place that stands in judgment of others versus repenting of the places where we've hurt you and chosen our way over yours. Father, today, we just thank you for Jesus. As we prepare to meet with you and meet with him at his table, I pray that our heart would know any offensive way that exists within us and we would place it before you and come purely as we can. In Jesus' name, amen.